Does, uh, does anyone in here have trouble remembering things? Yeah, that, that'd be me. I'm telling you, I have the worst memory. Uh, my wife will agree with that. And while I tr- think that I remember things that happened uh, when our two boys were little, I'll start telling someone the story about them, and my wife will be like, that is not at all how it went. Just because I have a terrible memory. Um, I love football. I love baseball. I love my Denver Broncos. I love my St. Louis Cardinals. But I really couldn't tell you who won the past few Super Bowls or World Series. I couldn't even name the year that my two teams won championships. But I love those sports. I love my teams. I'm invested in them. But they just don't really ingrain themselves in my mind as much as other things. Um, I love people. I love you guys. But I don't remember birthdays and anniversaries. I'm just going to confess right now. Um, I remember my wife and I's anniversary. I do go with remembering her birthday, my children's birthdays. Um, but even the, the, the rest of the family, my parents, my brothers, my sisters-in-law, I, sometimes I remember, but when it gets to even be good friends, I probably don't even remember the month you were born in. And I promise I value people. I do. I love people, but I have a terrible memory. Um, a year or two ago, I couldn't tell you exactly when because I have bad memory, but um, I remember a North Point new members class. And I was just recently the, the director of our junior high ministries. And so Wade Bryant and myself on the Friday night of our North Point class, we would get to spend time with the students that were coming in brand new to the church. While their parents were spending time hearing Mike speak on the Friday night after dinner, we would go to a room, we would sit down with these new students, a lot of them scared to death, some of them excited to be there, and we'd get to know them. And this one young man, family is still in the church. I don't know if they're in here this morning, but they gave me permission to share this. He was real quiet and he shared his name and he began to tell a little bit about himself and kind of his faith story, how he came to know the Lord. And he he mentioned baptism. And so I said, oh, where were you baptized? And he kind of looked at me funny and he said, Grace Point Church. Oh, and so he talked a little bit more and he said something else. And I was like, hey, why not get my foot all the way down my mouth? And so I said, hey, man, who baptized you? And he looks at me like it's some type of joke or a trick. And he says, you did? And man, I just felt so awful. And Wade has never let me live it down. And rightly so. He talks all the time about how terrible my memory is. And that's the truth. But the truth is really, I simply forget some of the very things that I love and I'm passionate about, but that doesn't mean I don't value them. It just means that I need reminded. We're going to work through a passage of scripture this morning that I've been studying and pondering. And uh, this is going to tie directly in with Brett Ferguson's message last week on a mind set on the flesh versus a mind set on the spirit. And so if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go online to gracepointchurch.net. You'll find any of the recent messages on there and watch it and listen to it because it was really good stuff. But this morning, I want to take an in-depth look as much as possible in this time at Colossians chapter 3. And, and I want to see how, how we, how us, how our community, how us as a church, how can we gain from what Paul is writing to this church in a place called Colossae? And so before we get there, let me just remind you that this is written by the well-known Apostle Paul. If this isn't a reminder for you because um, you're not familiar with Scripture or maybe you're just not familiar with the Bible, that's, that's okay. But I would encourage you, go and study a little bit about this guy. He isn't just some godly guy that I was saying, man, hey, go, go read about this guy. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He, he just had this radically changed life, and I'll tell you a little about it. 
He's born in modern day Turkey. As a Roman citizen, he was at least moderately well off, which granted him a certain level of respect wherever he went throughout the empire. But Paul, he was like this Pharisee of Pharisees before he became a follower of Christ. I mean, a religious leaders of religious leaders. If there's a ranking, Paul is up here for religious leaders, but he hated Christians because he thought that they're heretics. And so one day, as he is on his way to this city called Damascus to arrest and to put into prison any who said that they followed this Jesus, God interrupts his life, completely alters his journey. You talk about momentum shift. He changes this man who was this persecutor and hunter of Christians, this well-respected, well-off man into one that began to travel throughout the Mediterranean world, preaching the good news of salvation to anyone who would listen. And he just starts changing lives for the glory of God. And so this chapter of this book in the Bible called Colossians is actually a letter written by a former persecutor of Christians who's now writing from prison, ironically, because his radically changed life has landed him in the very place that he used to put Christians. And he's writing to these young Christians in this church in Colossae because there's something not right in the church. There's something going on that's not right in the church. And studies differ over whether that is false teaching or religious arguments. And Paul sheds some light on this periodically through the book. And you'll see some of these instances because we're going to read through the entire chapter two before we get started. But it's safe to say that there is something not right in the church. And Paul writes this letter to combat these false teachings that are being advocated to the young Christians there. So let's read through chapter two. And I just want to do this in an attempt to lay the foundation of emotion and concern that Paul is writing with. Um, I'm, I'm reading from um, NIV 1984, so yours might look a little different, but it's on the screen. Paul says, I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for all those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then... And right here, Paul starts pointing them back. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, 
Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Pause right here for for a moment. This is ceremonialism. This is where some of this tension is coming in, where something is going on that's not right in the church. Verse 17, Paul says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Do you hear Paul's concern in that? I know that was a lot, but I want to just kind of lay the foundation from where Paul is coming from. But do you hear the emotion in it? Do you hear his, his concern? He's writing with a certain tone, not a judgmental tone, but he is concerned for his brothers and sisters in Christ who are wrestling with something. Um, I'm not sure how many of you guys are familiar with, with tone, but tone gets me in trouble all the time. Uh, my wife and my oldest son specifically, they'll point out all the time, my oldest son, Caden, he'll say, dad, that doesn't sound like what you meant to say. And, and while my words are implying one thing, my tone is implying something completely different. And what we have to understand right here in this text that we're reading this morning is that this is written from a man named Paul sitting in prison, really worried about his brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling. And I just want us to keep that in mind as we get into our main text in chapter three. So chapter three, verses one through 17, we're gonna break it apart into three different sections. And the text just kind of does that. We're gonna start verses one through four. Paul says, since then... You have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul writes in in the very first verse, he says, you've been raised with Christ. And let's, let's pause there for just a moment and just replace you w- with we so that as I'm speaking, I'm kind of personalizing this for us, for the church, because Paul's writing to the church. So let's learn from this. Let's apply this to ourselves. So we are being reminded that we have been raised with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. And so if we've been raised with Christ, then surely in order to be raised, we must previously have been lowered. And so Paul is implying here that we've died, we've been buried with Christ, all because of what Jesus did for us. Paul is writing this, wanting the church to remember their death with Christ. He desperately wants them to remember uh, in, in their present conduct now what was taught them at the very beginning of their conversion. What was the doctrine that they had committed themselves to upon deciding to follow Christ? And he's writing with this concerning, loving, just this cautious tone to the church in hopes that they'll remember that they died. I admit that my memory isn't that great 
uh, but the Apostle Paul can kind of be confusing at times in his writings, especially if you aren't familiar with his writings at all. Um, Paul's talking about, hey, you've died. But if, if I'm first time reading this, I'd be thinking, well, he's writing to someone. So are the recipients, are they, how are they supposed to read this letter if they're dead? And so there's this kind of this tension in this confusion over, are they dead or are they live? Paul, what are you talking about? Galatians 2.20, Paul says that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So that kind of helps a little bit. And he says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. Romans chapter six, verses three and four, Paul again writes, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may live a new life. John Piper, um, famous author and pastor, he said this. He said, conversion means death. If you don't die with Christ, you don't believe in Christ. That is the meaning of becoming a Christian. It is a profound spiritual event that involves death to sin. Short of that, we are simply playing religious games. And so conversion means death. And while a lot of people recognize it as saying a prayer to accept Jesus into your heart, what we just saw that John Piper is saying, and more importantly, what we see according to scripture, especially through Paul's writings, is that conversion is a surrendering before God. It is us being justified by what Christ did on the cross for us. What was done on our behalf. We are now in right standing with God. We are now righteous. We have been made new. We are clean all because we have surrendered our lives and our flesh to him. And Paul is urging the Colossians to remember they died. And since they have been raised with Christ, we're still in verse one, they should set their hearts on things above. Meaning he is encouraging them to seek after heavenly things to hunger, to strive for, to run after, to desire, to center all of our outlook on life, our focus, our goals, our ambitions around our relationship to Christ and what God would have us to do. Now, why would I want to just think about all of that? Because he's worthy. He's worthy. We we sang it this morning. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Worthy. He's worthy of our focus. He's worthy of our deepest desires. But make a note of this so that you don't beat yourselves up trying to alter every decision and focus in life around heavenly things because this deep desire within, it only comes from remembering that we died with Christ and we have been raised with Christ. And let me clear something else up about this idea of just seeking after heavenly things. This doesn't mean that we withdraw from all the activities of the world to sit in a corner and meditate on eternity. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that we withdraw from all the activities of the world to sit in a corner and meditate on eternity. In fact, you'll see a little bit later on, kind of in the third section when we close, is that Paul expected Christians to maintain normal relationships in this world. But what you'll find is that those who are daily remembering that they died with Christ and they have been raised with Christ, they will begin to view everything through the lens of eternity because that becomes all that truly matters. What you'll find is that those who are daily remembering that they died with Christ and they have been raised with Christ, 
they'll begin to view everything through the lens of eternity. God, how can I bring you glory? God, how can I honor you today? God, when I get out of bed and I get ready and I go to work, what are some loving things that I can say to my spouse? Husbands, how can we lead our lives well? How do we, how do we, how do we raise our children to bring God glory? Guys, what do we do when we go to work? God, I want to glorify you. Let me leverage the blessings that you have given me to make your kingdom expand and to make you famous. For young people, for students, when we're at school and there's the locker room chat, how do we glorify God through our mouths and what we say and the jokes that we tell and the things that we do? This applies to all of us. And this is what Paul is writing about. So when Paul writes to set our minds on things above, and not on earthly things, uh, we got to understand not all earthly things are evil. He's not saying that, I'm not saying that. But when those harmless things begin to take the place of our focus and consume our thoughts and replace things above, those harmless things can become idols and are completely unworthy for those that have been raised with Christ and know that our hope and our future is with the glory of Christ when he returns. Why would Paul write where Christ is seated at the right hand of God? Let's just keep moving on here. Why did he find that important to say in this letter to the church where something's not right? I did, um, I did some research online in hopes of improving my memory retention. And one thing that I, I came across, I found several unique methods. And I'm, I've started applying these immediately. But one, one method that I came across that Funny, I've, I'd heard about it before, but I'd forgot, right? Um, but it's this idea that Dr. William James considered the father of American psychology. He writes about it and he says, in order to be easily accessible, a memory should have several cues. So effective study methods are those where you see the same information from different perspectives and create several meaningful associations. An important feature of associations is that unusual, unique, and dramatic connections are easier to recollect. Let me make it clear. When you walk through a busy street, you hardly pay attention to people passing by. But if you accidentally notice someone in unusual costume or maybe weird facial expressions, you would surely remember that person even several hours later. Your mind inherently tends to pay extra importance to things that are other than normal or interesting. A lot of you guys in here, you know all about this stuff because you're in marketing or you're in content marketing. And for the rest of us, like myself, I just know that there's this interesting technique when uh, companies use something kind of bizarre that it helps you remember things. And so take Aflac, for example. As soon as I say Aflac, 90% of you are now talking like a duck and saying Aflac, right? And I know nothing about Aflac. I really know nothing about insurance other than I feel like we're insurance poor. But Aflac insurance, I don't know anything about it. But when someone gets hurt that I know, or they're like short-term disabled, I'm like, hey man, you should check out Aflac. I don't know anything about Aflac, but I've seen the duck. It must be good insurance. Um, Geico, what's their deal? Are they competing with Aflac, right? I call it a lizard. I say they're using a lizard. Someone in the first service corrected me, but hey, sorry, I call it a lizard. Chick-fil-A, he's a dairy cow. And it makes me crave spicy chicken sandwiches and waffle fries. I don't know what it is, but it's this imagery that helps us remember And it serves as reminders. And Paul, who is way before his time as a marketer, he's writing with this cautious, loving tone. And he's using imagery associated with this reminder to ingrain the importance of remembering our death with Christ, our being raised with Christ, and how important it is that we strive for things in heaven 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. To me, this sounds like an important place. And I get hung up on the right hand thing. Like that just jumps out at me because I'm fairly familiar with a culture in West Africa where the right hand means everything. You eat with your right hand. You shake hands with your right hand. It is your clean hand. It is your respectful hand. When you pay someone, you count your money, you pay someone with your right hand. It is a sign of respect because your left hand in that culture is your dirty hand. And you can just use your imagination as to why. In our culture, we say things like, hey, this, hey meet Joe, man. This is my right-hand man. He's kind of my, my main guy. And I, I, I think we do that because it distinguishes this, this place of importance that our friend has reached in our lives. Paul is reminding us that Christ is not seated just anywhere, but he is in a place of honor and we should approach him as one that God honors above all. I mean, this is his son with whom he's well-pleased, Matthew chapter three. This is our savior, the one that God promised prophets that one day he would send. This is the one that was sacrificed on our behalf. Going on, Paul writes, you've died. Your lives are not hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Yes, Christ is our hope and our salvation. And that's possible because of his death and resurrection. But we must remember that it is he who gives us life and our true lives are hidden with Christ and God. Confusing as it might be, our physical lives are right here. Our physical bodies are right here, but our souls are safe and secure with Christ in heaven. And one day when he returns, there will be some type of glorious manifestation where we are reunited with God. And so there's a lot of reminding and remembering going on in this first section of our passage as Paul is trying to address whatever is not right in the church. And I think there's some things in those first four verses that we need to be reminded of as well. Verse five of chapter three, we're gonna kind of take a little shift. Um, I mentioned how it kind of breaks itself into three different sections. We're gonna enter into that second part where Paul is basically gonna say, okay, now that you've been reminded, hopefully you've been reminded, let me point out some things that make you look less like the image of Christ. These things that you need to put to death, these things make you look less like Christ. Verse five, Paul says, put to death, Therefore, I, I love how he just builds. Okay, so put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips, do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Let's, let's dig a little bit deeper into this. Paul writes that we need to put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature. The original Greek text for put to death is literally to make dead, to completely stop, cease to exist, bring an end to, doesn't happen anymore. We aren't 
supposed to struggle with every being of power and will within us to regulate our behavior or simply suppress or try to control evil acts and attitudes in some effort to become better behaving or better speaking or better sounding Christians. We're supposed to dig out the roots of our sin and utterly destroy it and completely exterminate the old way of life. And and we remember um, Jesus' famous sermon that, that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let me clear some things up because I don't believe Jesus wants us to start hacking off our body parts because the truth is, if that's what it took to remove sin, we wouldn't be able to stop. Even a blind person can lust. But what I believe Jesus is implying here is that we better take sin seriously and we better be willing to go to some drastic measures to make some big changes in our lives. And I believe Paul is aligning with this and he's writing it and, and he's implying, you know, this can oftentimes be a painful process. But you know how we can put to death that sinful nature? How, how is that possible? How could we possibly put to death the sin that's in our life? We can't. Let, let me clarify that. We don't have that type of capability on our own. We don't have that. This goes right back to Brett's message from last week. A mindset on the flesh versus a mindset on the spirit and what that spirit enables us to do. You see that that power that I'm speaking of is only found in all of that reminding that Paul did repeatedly telling the Colossians to remember that they died with Christ and they have been buried with Christ and they have been buried with him in baptism. And since they have been raised, they have the power of the Holy Spirit within them to go to battle for them. Essentially, it's the gospel that Paul is pointing us towards daily to remember who God is and what God has done and who we are. And as a result, what we do, and it has to be in that order. It has to be from the top down. Fitzpatrick and Johnson and counsel from the cross wrote, most of us have never really understood that Christianity is not a self-help religion meant to enable moral people to become more moral. We don't need a self-help book. We need a savior. We don't need to get our collective act together. We need death and resurrection and life-transforming truths of the gospel. And we don't need them just once at the beginning of our Christian life. We need them every moment of every day. And so as we remember the death and resurrection of Christ and our being justified and our being made righteous and our being made new and what Christ did for us, we remember our death with Christ every single day. We remember us being raised with Christ where our eternal lives are secure. And by all of that remembering, we are enabling the spirit of God to go to battle for us. Just a note here. There's a difference between justification and sanctification. Two big churchy words that some of us are familiar with. Some of us like, yeah, I hear those all the time, but no one ever really explains them. Really important words. In this passage, this is really described as the indicative or the imperative. And I recently heard it referred to as position and practice. The indicative, our position, is where our justification has taken place. That's what has happened. 
God did this for us. It's the truth that has taken place. It's done. The imperative or the practice is what we do as a result of being justified. We long to become more like Christ. It's a result of the indicative. This is where God continues to sanctify us every day as he empowers us with his spirit. He empowers us in our struggles with lust, our addictions to pornography, just the struggle to be married, struggles with adultery. He empowers us in um, fighting the, the, the temptation to have sex outside of a biblical marriage our impure thought life, doing whatever you want with whomever you feel like it. Selfishness, envy, greed, jealousy, all of that reminding and that seeking after and that setting our thought life on things above is is what allows us to rid ourselves of things like a bad temper and yelling at our kids and, and yelling at our spouse and being easily irritable and just being mean and using profanity. This isn't about behavior modification. This is about being conformed to the image of Christ through acting and believing and speaking and thinking like he does. Paul wrote in Romans 6, verse 1 and 2, I love studying Colossians and then immediately turn around and applying what he said in Romans 6, 1 and 2. He said, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? I mean, Paul is basically saying, "Uh uh-uh, heck no. How could grace possibly increase anymore? It can't. Christ went to the cross on my behalf. My old self has has, has been killed. It's been buried. It doesn't make sense that I could be living in sin. I died to sin. 2 Corinthians um, 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. For those of you here this morning that are not Christians, maybe you just have not decided to place your faith in Christ yet. Maybe you are on a spiritual journey. Maybe you just came in here today for the first time. I don't know what spiritual state your heart and your mind are in. But hear me very clearly. I can tell you one thing. This idea of putting to death our earthly nature is a terrible place for you to start. In fact, there are Christians in this room today myself being one of them, who likely started here. And this is completely out of order. We can't choose to be good. We do not possess the power to just choose to stop messing up in our lives. We have to remember the proper order of the truth of the gospel. And again, it is from the top down. Who God is and what God has done and who we are and what we do. I cannot say, you know what? I'm gonna go to church and I'm going to start being good, and I'm going to clean up my act, and I'm going to love my wife well, and I'm going to love my kids well, and I'm going to give to my community, and I'm going to give to the church, and, and I'm just going to be good because I'm Caleb Gabrelli, and um, I, I think something God created me, and, and Jesus died on the cross, and that was all because God is, you know, at the top. It's, it's backwards. It doesn't work that way. It won't last. We have to start with, okay, who God is? He is this loving creator, the one and only who allowed his son to die on our behalf. And I am created in his image. And as a result of what he did for me and understanding the depth of his love for me, I'm gonna let it define my life. I'm gonna be completely vulnerable with you this morning. And I hope that my sacrifice of vulnerability, I hope I don't regret it. Um, I I hope that my sacrifice of vulnerability will will lead someone in this room to just take action in this spiritual life. 
but a few weeks ago, um, I noticed this bite on the back of my left leg. And assuming it was just a chigger bite or some type of spider bite, I, I ignored it. I get bites all the time. I live out in the country. We're always getting scratches and bites and wearing shorts when we should be wearing pants. No big deal. It started to hurt. And then it started to get really red. And I was like, man, this doesn't look like any bite that I've ever had. And so I did what everyone would do. And I Googled what this could be. <laughs> what is this thing on my leg? I don't know what this is. And it didn't take too many Google searches. And I was like, you know what? I need to go to the doctor. I have staph infection. Yeah. I don't know how I got staph infection. I don't know whether it was a spider bite or a bug bite or a chigger bite or a scratch. I'm not sure. But whatever it was from, it started to get out of control. And the nurse practitioner, she gave me two different options. She said, you know, I can clean it and I can prescribe some antibiotics to you and you can just wash and and, and cleanse the infection every day. We could just kind of let it run its course. Or... I can shoot your leg with lidocaine and I can make a cut and I can get down to the infection where the problem really is. And so um, I'd been there for like two hours. I was like, let's take the full deal. And so upon taking option number two, I, I laid down and she shot my leg with lidocaine and she started to cut and she cut deep and it hurt. And I felt like I wanted some more lidocaine. It was painful. And, and the daily cleansing and washing and, and disinfecting our house and bleaching everything. And my wife basically being like, unclean, unclean. That has all been painful as well. It has been a pain in the butt. Well, in the leg, actually. <laughs> but what started as something harmless, like something that I, I'd had before. I, I mean, a little bug bite, no big deal. I can take care of this. I can doctor it. I can treat it. I can, it's a bug bite, no big deal. I can get through this. It began to affect me. It began to mess with me. And what I found about staph infection, what I discovered while trying to assure the nurse that I did have good hygiene is that staph infection, the bacteria, sorry, staph bacteria lives on your body. And it enters in through the tiniest of cuts and wounds, spider bites, whatever. And I started thinking, man, isn't that exactly what sin looks like in our lives? I mean, we're sinners. Sin is present in our lives. But when we aren't continually putting it to death, man, it creeps in and it begins to take over and it can cause damage and strife and it can threaten our lives. And you see, when Paul writes to the church, he's not just reminding them of what they committed to upon deciding to accept Christ. He's telling them that they can't battle on their own all the things in life that begin to easily entangle us. Church, we have to remember who God is and what God has done and who we are and what we do. And what we do is we get to the root of sin because the spirit has empowered us and enabled us to fight. The spirit fights on our behalf. We have to completely destroy sin and kill it. And because killing isn't easy, oftentimes it's this painful process to get through the layers upon layers of junk and filth and and trash and just garbage that's in our life so that we can get to the root of the infection. I mentioned this morning that our text was divided into three parts. Again, Paul uses that very first part to just point people back and point the church back and remind them of the decision to die with Christ and the ability that that gives us to center our lives on things above. But in the second part that we just worked through, he describes all the things that represent who we were before Christ in an effort to tell us that all of this makes us look less like Christ. 
And let's face it, this, this could potentially be who we still are if we're not fighting with the right tools. With the spirit inside us, we have the power to leave these things off that we have taken off with our old self. To be encouraged that our new self, verse 10, is being renewed. That's where that sanctification process comes in again. We are constantly growing in him and maturing in him and hopefully becoming more like Christ as we put to death the things that make us look less like Christ. We're going to close with the third section of this passage this morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let God's word speak for itself to whatever it is that he is trying to speak to you this morning, starting in verse 12 and working all the way to verse 17. And what I would like us to do is to bow our heads, close our eyes as I read God's word. And for us to maybe examine within ourselves, is there something not right within the church? And I don't mean within the Grace Point Church. I mean, the church is in us as in being little Christ, those of us who are followers of Christ and have recognized that we died with Christ and we've been raised with Christ. So bow your heads and close your eyes. Paul writes in verse 12, therefore, as, as once again, he's like, okay, now that you've got all that, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances that you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful, be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God, we love you. God, I thank you for, for men like the Apostle Paul who were so concerned for a young church who even sitting in prison found it necessary to send a letter saying, my brothers and sisters in Christ, don't forget I know you have terrible memories, but don't forget the decision that you made to die. You have taken off the old self. And God, thank you for his words that allow us to see, man, these are the things that we need to do a lot less of if we're gonna look more like Christ. God, may we never forget. And God, let us not even just think in big picture. God, when we leave this place and we get ready to go to lunch or go be with our families or our friends or to go home to be alone, God, may we remember that we died with Christ. God, you are the ones living through us. God, thank you for your, your reminders daily. We love you and we need more of you. And it is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.